0: In the movie. It
1: was
2: Stephen Delane, I think is his name, or something like that, the actor.
0: Really? And, uh, something. Yeah, I think that. it was the same. Wait, the, the wait thing? what? I wait,
2: think are you
0: being serious? serious? Played like, yeah, Harry yeah, plays, yeah, exactly. Oh, he played. I I see. I was very confused. <laughs> no, Harry Varden <Harry laughs> did not
1: yeah. play Dennis Baratheon. I was like, Harry Varden's gotta be <laughs> dead. He was, was <laughs> drilled. <drunk. laughs>
2: <was drunk>. Oh, Is <laughs> It
0: is Harry Varden. So, um, Stannis had won the U.S. Open <laughs> in 1900. and Stannis. Yes. These are the tales of golf past as you've never heard them before. Our guests tell stories blending historic rounds on and off course moments, memories of personal catastrophe and elation, and yes alcohol. I'm Jer. I'm Proy. I'm Joe. And I'm I'm Ings. We do the work. You tell the story. These are the Lynx stories.
2: I'm Kevin Lally. I'm going to tell you the story of Francis We Met. Francis was born of an uh, Irish immigrant and a French Canadian immigrant. Uh, I believe in 1893. Good Uh Not a very wealthy um, family. They were very poor, actually. His, his father did some gardening and some random other work around town. Uh, I was very much of the mind that uh, you need to work hard to get your money um they lived across the street from the country club or, not, or at the time I guess it made sense for them to live over there but uh nowadays you probably have to spend uh two million dollars for that little square land or something like that uh Brookline's a pretty expensive place to live nowadays um but he lived right across the street on Clyde street uh across from I believe it's the 16th hole um of the country club and so from a young guy uh I think it might have been like seven or eight or something like that when you might have started popping over to the to the course and sneaking a couple holes in or or uh getting a couple swings in at least i know it, at that time him and his brother older brother i think it's wilfred that could have completely made that up uh made a little Sounds makeshift right. course uh, above uh, two or three holes uh in their backyard and i think they even made their own clubs um I think they probably had a couple of clubs which i mean even at the time professional clubs were just you know wood with a little brass on them or something like that so um I know that they would go over to the country club and find a bunch of uh, golf balls um nowadays you'd go over there and probably find a bunch of expensive golf balls a bunch of probies in the woods and um would come back over and just play kind of their own little three-hole course and um that's kind of how they they both learned to play um eventually got into to actually caddying at the course i think when he was 10 or 11 or so um and really started to model his own swing basically based off of whoever he was caddying for which if he did anything when i was caddying i always caddied for pretty terrible players so i hope he obviously he didn't do that Uh, must have been caddying for some pretty decent players um and then also i think he there was a book that harry varden i think published that he read probably incessantly um to kind of figure out his own golf game and golf mind and whatnot um which had i remember written whatever i read was there was a phrase that he like really kind of clung to which was uh, a longer quote but it ended that harry wrote that ended with never despair and it was basically saying that all your other opponents can give into uh their nerves but the one who holds it and and doesn't give in will be the one who wins championships and that's the only two different kinds of golfers there are is the one who kind of uh, holds their nerves and checks and wins championships. And the other one does not. And there's probably plenty of even PGA golfers we could think of right now who uh, maybe fall into the ladder. Um, but so I, I know that when he was really young, um, he even, you know, would read or whatever uh, and try to learn as much as he could about the game based off of the current pros and, um, as many as there were, which weren't many. Um, he uh, started playing um, a little bit more, got into playing in high school, um, and actually created... Um, he actually created the... Uh, or helped create the Interscholactic League, I think it was, which was... Um, that could be a completely wrong word. Interscholastic sounds like intergalactic. That's not- yeah, like a BC <laughs> Boy song. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was, it was a high school league uh, that he then pretty quickly uh, became, like, the, one of the best, if not the best, um, high school player in the state, um, even though um, his family and especially his father kind of kept going back to him and saying, like, this isn't really a game for you, and we're supposed to be, you know, hard workers who work on the land or, or, or whatnot. Um, he apparently always figured that this was something he's really talented at, so why not give it a shot? And from what I've gathered, his uh, his mother, I think, was a little bit more on the uh, follow-your-dreams son uh, than his dad was. Um, he then uh, started to get into some of the amateur tournaments. Um, he played in and won um, the U.S. Amateur, um, I think that was actually at Wollaston Country Club, which has actually now been shifted uh, for anybody who's looking for Massachusetts. Uh, that's actually now President's Country Club. Wollaston is a different country club. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember what year. I think it was in the 60s or 70s or so. Wollaston, uh, they created a new course and the membership moved. And then uh, so presidents in Quincy would be where that course took or that, that uh, round took place. Um, so he wins the US Amateur there. And this is after a, a couple of years where I think that he, he didn't play as well um, after high school and uh, or towards the end of high school in these these you know amateur tournaments and kind of had taken a little time off or you know, played a little less because he was one, probably downtrodden from losing and two, probably sick of his dad yelling at him. Um, and so he ends up winning that one, though. And at that time, he's working for George Wright uh, in, uh, I think it's Jordan Marsh in the city, uh, sporting goods store. Um, and ends up uh, George Wright winds up helping him. Uh, I think, I'm not sure if he even knew about it, but um, I think at some point he basically finds out that he is going to be entered into the U.S. Open. And actually, that's that one backtrack. That is after he loses to Jerry Travers in the uh, U.S. Amateur pretty handily, I think. Um, But in fairness, Jerry won it, um, I think, a few years in a row then. Um, That would have been 1913. And um, at that time, Jerry was probably uh, seen as the best U.S. golfer in the world uh, that there was. I mean... I think it was um, uh, Jerry, John McDermott who had won the U.S. Open before that, the year before, uh, as the first U.S. player to win that. But I think that Travers was still considered to be the best at the time, at least the amateur side. Um, so it wasn't really a super surprise that he, he got beaten at. Um But so from that, after losing that um, U.S. Open, or um, U.S. Amateur match to Travers, he kind of uh, is thinking he's probably, you know, done for there and going to just move on with his business career that he wants to go with. Um, And I believe that's when George Wright kind of sets him up with the um, USGA chairman and they kind of just toss him on the roster for the U.S. Open, um, which he is obviously quite surprised by. Um, Probably seems to be a pretty modest guy and modest kid this time even. So he's probably, uh, very nervous to, to even, uh, try to jump into that arena. Um, so from there, he, he you know, he, he goes to Brooklyn. Of course, he's very familiar with at least, um, having been a caddy there until he was, I believe, 16, which, uh, going back to the USGA part where they, uh, You know, had some strange rules now and they had some stranger rules then. Uh where they considered if you were caddy past the age of sixteen, you had to turn pro. I don't know if that means pro in caddying or pro in golf, but uh you could not caddy after you were sixteen. So that's why he it's other reason why he jumped into the, the sporting goods and um that kind of business. Um and so that with that, help, that gets him into the U.S. Open. And um, the way those were set up at the time was a little bit different than today. It was more of a – it wasn't a four-day tournament with a cut. It was like a – there was a two-day qualifier. And then I think it was another – so there's another two rounds after that. So it was really – you had to qualify as opposed to making the cut. And that first day it was a 36-hole day as well. So – um, I know in that specific tournament, it was roughly the, I, I don't think there was really a OWGR at that time, but there was a top 30 in the world and 29 of those 30 guys made it through. Um, those, the first, you know, major cut, if you will, or the qualification. So it wasn't like this was a weak field, at least as far as US standards went at that time. So it was a pretty strong field. Um, until they get into the first round and uh I believe he plays pretty well. I know that uh the I'm pretty sure the first shot he had was a complete duck hook left into the marsh on I think it's a park yeah. box the first hole there, which I think it was and they kind of portray this in the movie too. It's it's like the first time, you know, you first get in the first D and there's a there's a group around you watching uh, if you're not used to that, it's not going to go very well, especially if you have eight clubs made out of hickory and brass, like it's probably a pretty good chance that that thing goes in the woods. Um, uh, and I did, I guess I skipped the, I was going to say his caddy helps him out, but even back backtracking to the caddy part, um, before he even gets to go out, he goes and plays a practice round and sees Harry Varden there and, and Ted Ray there and uh, who else? Um, McDermott and all these other good players at the time and probably gets pretty nervous. Um, He ends up uh, asking one of his good friends to caddy for him, um, who agrees initially. And then when he comes out to him later, he finds out that he is actually, he actually declines again. Um, I forget his, his name there, but he declines again because he's actually accepted a deal to caddy for Louis Tellier who later becomes a head pro at uh, I forget which course it is again and uh in, in Massachusetts. But he um Louis Tellier is a French player who uh as far as I could tell was never quite as good as he thought he was. Uh but he guaranteed this friend of Francis's uh I think it was like twenty bucks at a time or something. I don't know what that translates to, but it sounds like a lot um so he backs out and francis has to go to his friend jack who is i think another player and a friend of his from his home course at woodland um and he initially says yes he'll be there he'll show up tomorrow we'll be there at the tournament for him. um and at the time there was truant officers who basically made sure that you did not play hooky and if you did um I, I don't really know what the repercussions were, but uh, you would get in trouble and whatever it meant to be in trouble in 1913. Um, probably not great. Ruler punishment. Yeah. <laughs> Something about the width of your phone, I'm not really sure. Um, and so uh, Francis shows up on the first day and getting ready to go all nervous, and his caddy isn't even there. And all of a sudden, uh, this little like roly poly kid who I think. At least in the movie, maybe made to be more roly poly than he actually was. But I guess if you weren't, uh, you know, five eleven and one hundred and ten pounds, you were overweight in that day. Um, so his, Jack's little brother Eddie shows up um, and is just like, from what I've seen, is a very energetic kid. For I think he was ten years old. Um, didn't really take crap from anyone. Um, sounds like a city kid from Boston in 1913, I guess. Uh, and so he- Sounds like your
0: friends um, at uh, at bars.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Not to name names specifically. <laughs> um, yeah. And so he, he tells Francis, you know, I'm here, I'll caddy for you. Initially, I think Francis is kind of saying like, no, you don't have to do that. Like I'll, I'll carry camera bag. And um, I'm sure they got a little bit of a- Second take or double look from people around because everyone else had, you know, caddies either of the course, into the course or some sort of professional type of caddy or someone that would go around with them. Um, him and said Francis walking around with like a four foot 10 year old, uh, who's barely taller than the bag, but um, seems like that might end up being what he needed so, um. They end up getting out for the qualifier, um, which, as I mentioned, like that kind of the, the Thursday of today's round. Um, and they get out there, and I believe he, he plays pretty well. Um, like Ted Ray actually takes the lead after the qualifier round is, is done. But from that point, they actually wipe the, the, the board clean. So I think it really is like a qualifier almost to get mm-hmm. into the then Thursday round. Um, so I guess it would be like a Wednesday round today, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. and then uh as they so then they get into the the initial um you know first couple of rounds of the of the of the tournament. Um and again that that's that's where you know Her, uh Francis kind of falls off a little bit with uh getting a little overwhelmed by and it's not the big crowds that, that will come later but there are some crowds then a little bit more than his intergalactic league probably. Um, and so they play, you know, pretty well. And after I think that half that those two rounds, which is then the half, um, I think he's backed by one, um, behind Ted Ray and Harry Varden, um, or at least Varden, I think Ray was, might've been with him there. Um, for the, the last two rounds, um, which are played again the same day, uh, they actually go through and it's, and so I know this would be another le- a leading to the movie thing, um, they kind of portray it like it's, it's, uh, it's two different days or two different rounds and it's, it's what it's, um, that's just not what it was. <laughs> so <and that's, laughs> in the the that they play they call the last the last eighteen on that in that movie or whatever, where it's absolutely pouring and there's like pour, water pouring off their hats and you know they're entirely soaked. They have leather bags and leather grips and everything. So it seems to be awful to be out there. Um and so they play and um I think it's, again, it's pretty close. It's within a stroke or two going into the end of the the third round there. And the way they did them then was that um, since Ted Ted and Harry had actually teed off well in advance of of Francis, they start their next round. And actually, by the time that Francis teed off for his fourth and final round, uh, Harry and Ray had already finished. And Harry actually, and uh, Francis, sorry, had a five-stroke lead before he even started his last round. Um, which you would think is a good thing. In this case, he didn't have, he wouldn't have the capability to go into the clubhouse and change his outfits and change anything like that or have a break and and that day probably have like a pint and and a sandwich or something. So he just kind of sat around with uh, his caddy there and uh, soaked in the soap and waited for his tea time for the afternoon. Um, So teed off with a five stroke lead and the five-stroke five stroke lead was gone in five holes. He, I think, doubled the first and then the third hole, mm. which led him to now be even. And at this point, he tees off with a five-stroke lead, and Ted and Harry are both done. So he basically just if he can play under five, under five over. It's kind of his. So he loses the entire lead in the first five holes. Um, Kind of climbs back a little bit. Uh, down, I think he's down two strokes going to the ninth hole. Um, works his way back again. And the bigger shot that I don't think people recognize is on the 13th hole. He basically goes uh, like left rough to a right, just the right, not the right bunker, but just in between the two bunkers there and ends up chipping in for birdie to gain a stroke back that he didn't plan on. So I know that like, I've seen some things where he's talking about like. He was planning on. He was kind of into golf course management before people were into golf course management. So he was thinking like, I need to gain two strokes on this back nine. Here's where I'm going to get them. The other holes I need to par. It wasn't. I'm just going to get them right now and go for it. It was. I'm going to get them at 14 and 16. I got to par everything else. And he basically walks himself accidentally into a birdie on 13 to bring him to one one stroke back. Um, and then he kind of gets thinking he's going to probably get the other birdie at 15 um, or 16 rather and gets up there and that doesn't happen. Um, so he's really not sure how it's all going to work out. Ends up birding 17 um, to get himself into the tie and now needs the par, the 18 pole to just even go to a playoff with the two great British giants, which is like immensely intimidating <laughs> to be honest yeah. I don't mind the first jitters, but like, you got a four, this par four up the hill on a team to then, you know, even think about a playoff. And he, he just, I guess, in that, in that case, puts one down the middle, puts one in the green, two putts, and he's out of there. And I don't think he even noticed. The same, the same way that I've heard it, that he plays and whatnot is that he just kind of plays with like tick, 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 and doesn't really think about a lot what the shot means. And so... um I think mean, he, he finishes there without even realizing that he just parred and now he, he gets to go ahead. Um, so he he ends up parring that hole and uh crowd goes wild. Um, throughout that round, that's where uh, you know this entire reason for Ted Ray and, and um and Harry Gordon being there. Stannis. Yeah, it is Stannis. Um, is Melisandra coordinating... Melisandre is Lord <laughs> Northcliffe uh, coordinating this grand master plan of a U.S. tour to basically just bring in the Doe. Um, initially, I think they had almost promised Harry to be a member at St. Andrews, and that's what he thought was going to happen. And so they basically convinced him to work for them. Um promised so the Iron see, Throne. Yeah. And they come over on... This US tour, which I think was in like even Canada and brings them down. And so this this tournament the US Open winds up being one of the last two or three, I think, of their entire tour. Um and so they have been like pretty much kicking everyone's ass, including half the golfers there, for three or four weeks at that point. Um but so when they're when he's playing his his last round, uh Melisandre is out there with Stannis and Ted Ray, and they're watching uh, this young buck, uh, Francois. Somehow, uh, you know, after he they after he had already you know given all the strokes back, like most of us would, um, battle the the weather and and you know, make par and couple birdies in the back nine, and actually kind of de- deflate them in a the sense that that. Lord Nordcliffe, I think it was the guy's name, uh, who's the one who's funding this whole trip for these guys.
1: Lord Nordcliffe.
2: Uh, yeah, sounds like the worst. Is <laughs> the worst. Um, he, uh, I'm pretty sure, just keeps telling them how, like, yeah, this guy's not going to keep up. He can't do this. He's an amateur. But in the meantime, I think that especially Harry probably sees a little bit of himself in him since. When Harry was younger, his family got kicked off of their land in Jersey to build a golf course. He had no idea what golf was. He was like gardener and then a pro, not ever welcome into the clubhouse. He wasn't even welcome to the clubhouse at this tournament because he was uh, not a member. So the pros at the time, quote unquote, were not seen as professionals like we would call them today. They were PGA pros or, or um even even PGA pros are seen as a much higher class than that today. But um so so this Lord Norcliffe guy is basically trying to convince them that, that don't worry about it, you guys have it. No, no problem. This this kid's gonna run out of gas. He's he's not one of us only gentlemen win this tournament. Um meanwhile, I don't think that Ted Ray or Harry were knighted of any sort or of any family. Um both were pretty blue collar jersey men as they were. Um so both of them kind of figured that you know if he could do it or if we could do it then you know maybe he could too and so we're not gonna give in to your Lord ways, um ways Melisandre uh, and so <laughs> they go into they go into the um, the playoff <laughs> uh, shake it up at, at that time is an 18 hole playoff um, and they all pretty much play even golf. I think there's a, a couple birdies and pars and bogeys there made between the three, but they're all even after nine. Um,
0: How are you doing on on drinks over there, Kev?
2: Good? I could go for another one. A baby water. All
0: right. We're going to, I think, <laughs> re- well, makes just refilled the rest of his <laughs> bottle. And I, get, when I get a little bit, bit more. We're feeling great. More. So, um, I'm
1: working on that (laughs) one as well. (laughs) Is that a hard seltzer, Cap? Yeah, it's a, truly. Oh,
2: that's, that's what I had earlier.
1: I got the Coronas. These are blueberry
2: acid, which sounds really weird, but it's, like, fucking incredibly
1: good. mm. Mm.
2: This is pretty typical Cap. too. I personally find, like, the golf part of it a lot more interesting than, like, well, he died in eight nineteen. I just get rolling on these things and I just like keep drinking. And then I look the next morning at my trash can and I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you can crack another one before you start, too. I do that. I need a minute, though
0: anyways. All right, shall we uh shall we cook back into this back nine?
2: Yes.
1: Alrighty. Um, there you go. All right. So, um,
2: you where I was. So, so they end up um they like said they put the front nine um I think that Ray bogies a hole, ends up birdieing another hole. Um, I don't think that there's like, I guess in, in my mind, like when people think about who's who he's playing against, they're probably all thinking about the county kind of guys who just like have the one plane swing and they're just kind of going back and forth. And it's actually kind of interesting. Uh, somewhat recently, um, I don't know, it might have been some tournament. I forget which one it was. They showed kind of the swings of like, you know, slow-mo swing driver swings of like Rory and some of the, the older guys and like Palmer and et cetera. And it's actually kind of surprising to see Francis's slow-mo swing. And it's it's not it's not Bryson or Rory or anything like that, but it is not like a standstill follow-through, and either is Varden and those guys. There is a lot more of an actual like weight shift back left foot plant turn and turn uh then you might think but on on that topic ted ray like fucking smashed the ball this guy hit the ball like 320 yards or i could elaborate and say like 380 yards i don't even know uh but it was well over 300 i think and on his average and think about what he's hitting with it's probably some soggy piece of wood which i think about playing in the rain today it's it's not even like uh You know your irons aren't going to be affected by your rain it's just maybe your grips are a problem they're fine with hickory sticks and whatever heads that like legit would swell and change as it goes um if it's pouring in that day it was pouring. um but so they go into that that the back nine pretty much even um and and maybe because of the rain or maybe not uh ted winds up basically Launching a couple off into the trees. The course is a pretty tree-lined New England type style course, um, which was, event, it was originally it was actually just the polo grounds. I think a, a dog racetrack that they converted into six holes or nine holes, and then turns into uh, an 18 hole course. It's now one of the more legendary in the in the country. Um, but so he launches a couple off into the trees and um you know scrambles I think pretty well and, and keeps pace but um that only lasts a couple holes when you're playing with the guys who just kind of stripe it down the fairway every single time. Um so so he kind of starts to tally to fade off a little bit here and there to a couple more boge- another bogey another bogey, another bogey and so then all of a sudden buddy come to I think it's the seventeenth hole and Ted I think is about three or four strokes back. Um, and Varden I think is already a stroke back from from Francis. Um, and this is a hole that's I think for people who play the course frequently or have ever played the course, it's the most prolific course in the or hole in the course. Um, and it's this big dog leg with a with a bunker over the corner. So you can go for it and you could even back down. But there's a chance that you get stuck in these bunkers and I think the bunkers today are a little bit more forgiving. You know, there's, I guess, depends on where you're playing. If you're playing in pot bunkers in the UK, you are going to get screwed. If you're playing uh, at regular courses in New England, um, you can get out of them. But in this specific bunker and the way they were back then, they were kind of freelance. They weren't super, you know, organized and uh, didn't have uh, specific borders. They were kind of tough to to maneuver and figure out. so or camflud, yeah, they might have been camfluured um, in and that, in that situation, um, Barden goes for the corner and takes it up and over, and it looks like everyone it looks great, and everyone thinks it's going to be great um, and there was one thing that I think in those tournaments before the u s open um, that John McDermott learned was that. Harry Varden will basically tempt you into following him because he knows how accurate he is and he knows how inaccurate everyone else is. So it's, if you follow me, I'm going to win every single time.
0: Harry was um, Stannis Baratheon in the movie. It was
2: Stephen Delane, I think is his name, or something like that, the actor.
0: Really? And, uh, something like Yeah, something I think like that. it was the same. Was wait, the, the wait, thing? what? I, I think, are you being Barassian serious? Like, yeah, yeah, plays, yeah, exactly. Oh, he played. I, I see. I was very confused.
2: <laughs> <I> was <laughs> Harry Varden did not yeah. play Stanis Baratheon. I was
0: like, Harry Varden's got to be dead. <laughs> he,
2: he was, <laughs> <laughs> was oh, real <laughs> bad.
0: Harry Varden. So um, Stanis had won the U.S. Open <laughs> in 1900 and yes, real, um, real stubborn um, bastard. bastard. Mm. Mm. Most stubborn.
2: Watch out for the lady in red.
0: Oh. <laughs> That's right. Alessandra.
2: <laughs> King for Harry Varden. <laughs> <laughs> the back
0: nine on Sunday. The turmoil that Stannis is feeling and how Alessandra's talking to him and how they're trying to play the back nine. Only and... daughter is <laughs> suffering from grayscale.
2: Oh, no. Oh, sorry. Fred takes off his coat and he's not a 20 year old, he's like a 300 year old man. <laughs> with all the wisdom that harry never had yes
0: yes oh, that was so insane harry varden would do anything to win the u.s open including burn his 13 year old child
2: all right <laughs> um and so he took that spot and actually before this round uh i know that mcdermott kind of seemed and know, uh, people aren't familiar with that but he's a super hothead uh kind of guy that especially British golf was not a fan of US golf didn't really exist at the time. So no one's really sure how to act, but he was a big, like, you know, F.U. British, we're going to take it home. And uh, kind of a, a loud boisterous kind of player, which is really not what was typical at the time. But before this playoff, I think it might've been after the round of the day before um, he told Francis that at some point, Harry's going to challenge you and do not follow him. Um, and it was because of some of those turnips before he had done the same thing and basically lost because of it. Um, So in that instance, I think Harry was thinking, you know, or uh, Francis is thinking, let's let's follow him, and, you know, if he's going to play that way, we got to play that way. we got to go match for match because we're we're even, or or I'm only up by one with two holes to play. And it it seems like this is where kind of having the caddy and the kid of the caddy who's actually going to be the one who says, you know, like, this is your game plan, this is what you do. Let's do it. Um, Commences him to just hit one down the middle. and He does, and that's, uh, I think it's a par five. And Varden winds up going into the bunker that he didn't see around the corner. Um, and that's actually now, I think, I believe today is still known as Barden's bunker on the course, if you were to play it. Mm.
0: Um Arathian bunker. Has a little better ring to it, I must say. It does. A missed opportunity, nonetheless.
2: It's where, it's where Gendry is buried. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what we thought. And so, what ends up happening there is, you know, Francis is in the middle of fairway hits his long iron, bounces it right up into the green, and two putts for a four instead of a five. Um, and ends up birdieing the hole, um, or the three or the four. He ends up birdieing the hole. Um, and, and Hart and Barden, because of the risk he took, winds up having to punch out of the bunker and then punch up and get on the green and it's a bow So it's actually a two stroke swing, which then leads Francis into an 18 pole with a three stroke lead, which makes it a little bit easier than the last time he came to the 18 pole. Um, he winds up getting up there and parting. And, uh, I don't think he even again, similar scenario he knew that he won but didn't really you know take into effect that he had won um until it already happened um and so there there's the championship at least um you know from there i think it's um it's a different story where it's it's you're not no one's ever used to an amateur winning things like these um But at the same time definitely not an amateur who isn't really keen on turning golf into his profession um so he wants to make it you know still keep it as a hobby something he really loves and something he really enjoys for all the different aspects of it the the competition and the camaraderie and whatnot but isn't one of the guys who wants to be on the road who uh Tries to come in third or first or what have you to just make a living. Um, And one thing that also comes up there too is that, like, there's some incredible, as I mentioned before, that there's, you know, so many golfers that made that cut, if you will. Uh, And so Ted Ray and Harry Varden are in that group. But, like, even um, like Walter Hagen finishes in third in that tournament, he didn't make the playoff. And he's like basically not really mentioned or thought about in this story at all. And like he becomes the, like one of the best five players of all time, at least, you know, in the next 30, 40, 50 years. And, uh, he gets like, his really... movie
0: in Bagger Vance.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was even thinking like they, they kind of missed out on the movie. They could have put him in some sort of like, because his whole thing was that he was, you know, this uh, elaborate like uh, showman, businessman, sports guy. Like he was, he was. Uh, I don't know who to compare him to. He's almost like a WWF character, but like in golf at the time. Like he was was trying to be the showtime.
0: Which WWF character does he most resemble?
2: Oh, that's a good one.
0: Um, either in physical appearance or
1: in personality i'll let you take liberty Hmm. physically probably i mean he wasn't that big so it's kind of hard to, to pick which one um but in
2: character maybe um i feel like he probably had like the mentality of like hollywood hulk even though, the, like, that's probably not what he belonged with. Um, oh, yeah. Although, he, I guess he kind of proved it a little bit. Um, and i trying to think of, like, all I can think of in my mind is, like, the tag teams that have, like, all the, like, the headgear and shit like that. Um,
0: so is he uh, Hollywood Hagen?
2: Oh, he could be Hollywood Hagen. It's actually, that's it. This might be, I don't know if you just did that on purpose. But they actually spelt his name as Hagen because he was a late ad, and the uh, papers didn't know how to spell his name, so they yeah. actually called him. Uh, I think it was H W H Hagen, which was like Walter H. Like they. Or the king of acronyms.
1: Hagen. There's no. There's no
0: uh, mistaking that.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> that was very, very, very
1: intentional.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, they, they misspelled his name because they didn't know who he was because he was, I think, a year younger or a year older than Francis at the time. Um, which obviously he then became a much more prolific professional golfer. Doesn't he
0: have like does he have top five majors of all times? Walter I think it's Hagen? like
2: seven, seven or nine,
0: ten, uh he's got like a
1: shocking yeah, shockingly high number.
2: Very, it is. Which is why I like kind of going back into this stuff when I saw that and like it's kind of crazy that like I think Varden ended up with um six British opens or the open, sorry. Uh and like and I think Hagen
1: ended up with seven or eight majors, but um but uh no I just I just thought that was like
2: an interesting thing of There's even though like later in his career or or not his his golf career, but just in life that he ends up kind of coming out of this thing at the age of 20, then he goes into um, the, get back into kind of the sports business and the sports um, memorabilia, sales, you know, whatever you have, what have you. Um, And that's what he kind of wanted to be in the whole time. and. But he continues to play amateur golf, um, just for just for the sake of you know for the same reason he was always playing it. Um, so he wins the U.S. Amateur uh, the year after he wins the U.S. Open, 1914, um, and then doesn't win. He, he wins various other tournaments and. Um, in amateur tournaments um, throughout and again, wins the U.S. Amateur again in 1931. Um, which I think at that time was pretty rarefied air for winning the Am a couple of times. Um, other people like Bobby Jones and uh, Jerry Travers had already won it a few times, um, but it kind of put him in that, in that light, which I don't think even today he would ever be considered in that uh, realm of golfer. Um, and
0: I mean if Bobby Jones hadn't existed he might have been Bobby Jones
2: well the only, yeah, the only problem with that is that he kind of helped inspire Bobby Jones and Gene Sarazen um, I know that actually and I would look it up now but I won't um, Gene Sarazen that, that's not his actual name it was uh, something far more I believe Italian that he didn't think would uh, apply and, and play in um, hmm. the nineteen twenties golf era. So he let's hear your best guess as to, to what it actually is. I mean, it would just be Giuseppe, but that's its its more Italian than that. Um, What's
0: more Italian than Giuseppe?
2: Add add a couple of e's and o's, the eyes at the end. Of it, <laughs> I guess. Uh, Gi- Giuseppe Aero. Um <laughs> There it is. But somehow, and and Gene. Has said even before in interviews that um, he was a caddy and I, I might be Jersey, might be New York or somewhere in that area. Um, at the time that Francis won, he didn't find out until he saw it in a newspaper and was told while he's working. And he was a caddy, like I guess at the time. And that kind of inspired him to like think that, well, I could probably, you know, compete just like he could. And uh, so in some sense, players like that might not have existed because if this didn't happen, um, and not that it's you know 100% because Francis is one movement and uh, one win, but it's got to at least be part of it. Um, and I do think so even even going back, part of that growth of of uh, public golf in America was even just started more or not more, but partially. Because of that tour that uh Harry and Ted were doing, um because it seems like the two of them were also because they weren't of the upper class, even where they were from, I think there was a more of a, a clinging to them um than some other people. I know uh like even that in that own tournament, um they came over, but also so did Willie Reed, who was the uh, British amateur at the time, and he was a upper class. And he even effectively kind of looked down upon Gordon and Ray as kind of their own, you know, uh, their lifetime golfers. They're not upper class and whatnot, um, which I kind of wish I had gone back and mentioned the part where Ted Ray punched Willie Reed in the face, um, because that's a good part. <laughs> Um, that's the night before the second round, um, at the Copley Square hotel, which does still exist. Um, that's where they were all staying at the time. And Willie Reed basically is talking about how, you know, it's nice to find with you guys. And, you know, I can't believe you guys have made it this far pat on the back. Um, you, you guys from the slums of Jersey back at home and, and whatnot, and, uh, and Ted Ray actually punches him in the face and breaks his nose. Um, Mm. And I think, I don't know if actually that Willie Reed, I think he wound up playing the rest of the tournament, um, which was surprising, I guess, with a kind of broken nose, but I don't think he played very well. Um, And because he was, what he was trying to, what Willie Reed was trying to do was to kind of be the first person to build a brand similar to like what Walter Hagen would eventually do and become like a touring pro in the U S um, because mainly because the taxes were so damn high in the UK. <laughs> um, but come over here and make a, a living profession out of beating random golfers senseless. Um, but his whole, his whole kind of shtick was that he's an upperclassman he's born to do this and he's going to beat these, you know the gardener and the blue collar guys um every day and uh apparently that evening ted was not having it um but uh and maybe maybe that's the reason why ted didn't play so well in the playoff because i think uh, maybe his hand was a little busted but um who, who really knows? i guess um so then you know from there um Prince is going into kind of his 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 later career and 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 that's where he again he wins the US amateur um in nineteen thirty one and um that's where you know that's at that time considered a, a major. Um there was no PGA, there was no masters at the time, so that was kind of his goal the entire time since he had started playing, um, was to win the US amateur. So that was the second time around that he won it. Um, and I I think that he was probably pretty set with that. You'd think he would probably be pretty set with that at that time. But um, he wound up, you know, playing and captaining the in the Walker Cup. Um, I think he went. I forget how many years he did it, but he went like 11 and one or so that um, so was playing or tap thing together. Um, interesting fact the Walker cup is named after George, George Herbert Walker, who is
1: mm-hmm.
2: W's great grandfather. Um, I have no idea what he had to do with golf, but it's named after him anyway. Um, so, and in their mind, and you know, that was pre Ryder cup, um, And it was much more of a, I guess, you know, as the game was then, it was a more cordial uh, rivalry, if you will, um, between the UK and and the United States, uh, uh, a fancy way of having a a match. Um, And so he, you know, plays in that and continues to play that until he's in his 30s and 40s and, and playing well, which is, kind of a testament to you know the talent that he probably had if he had ever actually you know continued to put his mind to to the game instead of going into business and, and what he wound up doing, you know, going into um you know, general business and uh I think eventually into stock trading. Um and that's I guess in his mind that's always kind of what he wanted to do. But if he had uh I think if he had had the commitment to golf itself for the purpose of a um, a career. And he might have, you know, been a little bit more of the Hagen esque or, or whoever had you. But um, that just, even from day one, that kind of just didn't seem to ever be what he wanted to do. So. Um,
0: and yeah, it's a similar story for Bobby Jones, then too, who, you know, what we think of him as, you know, the greatest if if he wouldn't have, you know, given it up and, you know, went in a different career and became a family man, um, you know, we might've thought similarly about Francis as well.
2: Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that, you know, in large part, the kind of general theory or, or see sight around what Francis did, which was, you know, introducing, um, Maybe not introducing golf, and it probably wasn't the time, I guess, introducing golf to other people, but um, more like introducing golf as a potential either hobby or career or whatnot, whatnot to just a larger um, number of people. Uh, I believe it was, and I'm not sure where this poll was taken, but there was 350,000 golfers in the United States in 1913, and there was... two and a half million ten years later so it basically uh, multiplied by eight seven seven plus uh within those ten years um and again like you you can't completely call that just because of francis but but the fact that there was you know basically zero there wasn't zero there was a couple of public courses at the time there was course in new york that was established in 1895 was a public course there's probably a few other ones around um but even like for francis to get into the um into the u.s amateur he had to belong to a course and so woodland actually kind of just volunteered like we will host you so you can get in um he wasn't actually a member there um but it was next to where he grew up and you know I guess not, not as close to, uh, his house as the, the country club, but maybe a, a nicer club that, that, um, but so from there, it kind of is, is seen as this like revolution of golf becoming more public and more, uh, you know, attainable and, 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 a, and a hobby or a, or a career, I guess later on, um, by people who aren't well-off and people who aren't um of the upper class um and i think that's a lot of where i think um like the, the bobby jones era comes from is and, and francis is that they end up playing it because they love playing it and they love competing and um they love even probably some of the like somewhat and this is a little dagger vance for you i guess is a little bit more of the spiritual aspect of it is I don't know how many people have been out on a course like by themselves, maybe at like sunset, but I have from working at courses and it is like incredible. And it's, if you're out there in nature like that, and it's like, and, and I'm struggling to say what it's like, because it's kind of hard to describe, but it's, it's, uh it's something else. And uh, I think that that's where a lot of them get that from. And I actually just from, you know, Going back to watching the movies or something like that, in *Bagger Vance* and in in this in the movie for Francis, there is a point where they kind of zone out everything, and it becomes the whole and just them. And like there's kind of a commonality in that where it's like you know you put everyone and maybe you can do this elsewhere in your life. It's like you put everyone else aside, and it's like just you and your goal, and you just kind of work your own way through it. And uh, and it's it's kind of it's a, it's a whole different thing. Like no one else is around to whether it's to judge or to to see what you're doing, but you're just uh, out there. And whether you you're bogey or you birdie, it doesn't really matter. Um, but it's a, it's always. A, I think it's like an in, an individual thing for people to experience. But, it's
0: um, pretty pretty romantic. If uh, yeah, Rich got, was I here, can... we would we would splice in some Sarah McLachlan in the arms of an angel there. <laughs>
2: Well, if I had mentioned that I was barefoot with teeing off of the beer can, would I be more John Daly-like or? It's <laughs> half of that I don't
0: know. Shit? Everybody's romance is different.
2: Yeah, there <laughs> we go. Um, and so in um, Francis's, you know, later life, he, he just, he continues to be um, a part of the USGA and involved with the golf. Um, I did see in one place, which I I'm not going to say because I don't know if this is true or not that he was the president of the Bruins and then the VP of the Braves, which I don't know if that's true or not. So do not hold me to that. It, it is it seems no. very uh, business acumen uh, that he would you know get up to that level, but um, I'm not sure how he made the jump from Jordan Marsh to president of the bees. So we'll see. If
0: Probably he lost his it. amateur status after that. <laughs>
2: He might, he might have he might have made money. Um and uh and well speaking about amateur status is uh we talked about earlier about how he you know by by in the in the middle of him stopping and working at uh and catting and working at Jordan Marsh that they tried to basically take away his uh amateur status and part of that I actually think might have been valid there was actually a a club that jordan marsh sold that had that we met name on it so their clause was that you know you can't make money off of you know your golf status if you will um so I, i think that they wound up uh pulling the club or something like that and when he went off to war which i think he did at least once um yeah, he did once um, into the army, they while he was off at war, they kind of um, silently uh, reestablished his uh, ability to be an amateur. Um, and actually, speaking of when he was at war, um, he was one of the, he was the first golfer to be used by the Red Cross to create charity golf tournaments to um, create charity funds uh, and raise money for the Red Cross. Um, so he was uh, the Bob Hope of golf. Well, I guess Bob Hope was the Bob Hope of golf, but uh, the <laughs> non-Bob Hope just player. He was the here. Bob Hope
0: Jr. of golf. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. Um, so he was... Uh, he But they used him to, you know, at least in that time with the um, U.S. Open win um, to try to, you know, turn out some some money for the Red Cross, and and uh, and that worked out. Obviously, he he rose to lieutenant, you know, the rank of lieutenant, um, and uh, I believe when he came home, is when he got married, uh, not to the same girl that's in the movies, because I I don't know who that is, but it was Stella, and they had two girls. Um, and he just kind of continued on in his life uh, as a businessman, amateur golf man. Um, and when I think in 19, I'll make this date up, 1955, uh, they started the uh, right. Francis We Met scholarship fund, um, which he reluctantly agreed to use his name because, well, he seemed like a guy who didn't want his name anywhere to begin with. But they convinced him or his friends convinced them that if we have your name on it, we'll be able to raise more money because of it. So uh he he allowed them to do that. And uh they started a, a fund for basically anybody who was similar to Francis growing up who was um not of a high class and who was uh at least in some fashion a caddy or worked on a golf course in some some way. Um and were able to give them through donations and whatnot, and, and uh, tournament charity funds um, a bit of an assistance for uh, their college education, which uh, luckily enough, I was able to uh, apply for and, and gain. Um, yeah, that was pretty cool. I think I, the, the only thing I remember from that conversation was they asked you, like, if you could pick a foursome to play with, like, dead or alive, who would you pick? And I'm like, I'm going to get like. I'm going to give you the answer you want. No, this isn't a, a cool uh, interview. It's Francis Fiener. Farden.
0: Farden.
2: Harry Potter. Francis
1: Stannis Harry.
2: Yeah, I went with, uh, I think it was Francis, Tiger, my dad, and, and obviously myself. Oh. All the bird strings
0: with my dad. Wow. Yeah. I
2: don't, Yeah. Let's see. Right. And of, I, think <laughs> a, I think the tiger is like the newer version of Francis, and like the bringing it to the public in a way. So I feel like a mm-hmm. really ramped up public golf. Mm-hmm. which Did tip at like 2005 or so, and has been going down ever since. But uh, that's okay. a different story. Um,
1: and that's. Uh, probably where I have
0: it wrapped up. Now you said that the, um, so Kevin, to, to finish us out, I'm going to ask you the, uh, we met scholarship question of who would be your true ideal foursome to, uh, play around a of golf with. And I don't want I don't want the scholarship answer. I want oh, I okay. want
1: the real answer. Ooh, that's a tough one.
2: Um I think one would still be my dad. Um taught me to play since I was, I don't know, riding in his lap in his golf cart. So sure. that's still number one. Um,
1: that's tough. Uh
2: I think I, I, I some of you might not agree with this. I think I would go current day Phil because I think he'd be a fun party mm-hmm. and uh, and I think I might go with the co-host Joe Vals over here so he can uh, join the party That'd be Jeremy's blood party. boiling yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> no you you only get my blood boiling if you throw Rory Sabatini in there <laughs> or you say Chris Baticletti
2: no, I, I <laughs> hate Rory Zabatini, so that was never happening. <laughs> that's the point.
0: So you wow. changed your <laughs> answer from the, the scholarship answer.
2: Yeah, well, I wasn't trying to win a scholarship here.
0: Sorry, Francis.
2: You're yeah, out. You're out. Can't hit the ball far enough.
1: Tiger? So yeah.
2: Good oh, See yeah. Oh, that's a harsh. Uh, well, I guess when you flip your car over at 80 miles an hour, instead of hitting juicy bombs. That happens. Yeah, I, I mean,
0: so. you're trying to tee off tomorrow, and we got no time to wait for
1: Tiger. No, yeah, it's a problem.
0: There you have it. That is the story. And these are the Link stories. Was it 100% accurate? Yeah, that sounds right. Follow us on Twitter at the Lynx stories. Also, see all of our inebriated storytelling podcasts as part of the Stories Podcast Network at The Stories Pods on Twitter. As our guests rewrite the past across various sports, alcoholic drinks are consumed voluntarily by our guests at their own discretion.
1: Please drink responsibly. He <laughs> not bark the whole time. I know. Sounds like the, uh, the Scotland Yard,
0: the the Midnight. Fuck. I just watched 101
1: Dalmatians over the weekend. <laughs> What's the fucking Scotland? I <laughs> haven't seen it, it since happen. I was like eight years old. <laughs> I was, oh, no, no, no. It's, you're it's just struggling. I was, bar, like, you're having a you a I just watched
0: 101 <laughs> Dalmatians. That was like the last movie I thought you were going to say.
1: <laughs> it made you
2: bark. What well, was "Call Me Maybe" into "Partying in the USA" into "Baby One More Time," which is like I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how you how you could have crafted.
1: Did you need these.
2: a Did
0: you need a shirt change after that, or what? <laughs>
1: oh my god, we <laughs> I remember, yeah, and a pants change. I remember <laughs> at the at the that end that was a given.